We'll hear argument next in case 201199, Students for Fair Admissions versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College. Mr. Norris? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. I'm Tab Bismani. Glad to have you tuned in to our program today. We welcome WVON, 1690 AM in the Windy City, Chicago, uh, as a new affiliate uh, carrying this program. And I couldn't be more thrilled than to know that we're being heard right now uh, in one of my favorite cities in this country, the city of Chicago. So thank you, WVON, for carrying the Tavis Smiley program. In this hour, uh, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Don Porter joins us to showcase our latest project, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. You just heard the voice of Chief Justice John Roberts uh, moments ago. Uh, Deadlocked is a four-part documentary series that traces the modern history of the Supreme Court and the people, decisions, and confirmation battles that have shaped the court into what it is today. It's currently available on Paramount+. Plus with Showtime. I'm Don Porter, an honor to have you on this program. How are you today? I'm so well. It's a thrill to be here with you. Thank you for the time. Glad to have this hour to talk to you about uh, about this uh, about this series. Um, I was just talking to Connie Rice, our, one of our regular uh, contributors in our first hour, talking about the fact that the the new term of the court uh, commences today. So their summer recess is over. They are back in session, uh, and uh, there are a number of cases they'll be hearing uh, in this term uh, that will once again be very divisive, uh, from from race to to guns to the role of the federal government, uh, certainly uh, federal government agencies, uh, abortion uh, once again, yeah, and more. Uh, A lot to be discussed on on this particular docket um, in this particular term. Let me start with a couple of broad questions, and then we'll narrow as we move through this hour. Let me just ask you point blank, um, what is your read on the Supreme Court as we speak? And by your read, I'm asking, um, given that so many Americans in every poll, study, and survey of late uh, so many Americans are disappointed in this court. The respect for the court is, uh, is uh, you know, Connie said a moment ago that they're down with used car dealers right about now in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the lack of respect we have for the court and what they do. So I think I just feel, heard a phone line drop. I heard it in my ear. Uh, so let's, um, let me just keep talking until we get uh, Don Porter back on the line. I know a phone hang up when I hear one. Um, so let me just, uh, again, uh, tee up where we're going in this hour. So Don has produced this series, uh, and I want to get her take, as we will in just a moment, we get her back online here about how she views uh, the way the court is being viewed right now by millions of Americans. You heard Connie Rice say uh, in our first hour today that their popularity is down there with used car dealers. They really are very, very um, disregarded uh, and uh, not appreciated uh, in this moment. And I want to get Don's take on that. So, Don, let me stop talking and get your take. The question I was asking to get started here, a broad question, uh, is how you read uh, the way the American people see the Supreme Court in this present moment? Yeah, um, that, that's a really important question, and that is why I wanted to make this series for Showtime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the, that historically, you know, the, we start the series with the the kind of triumphs of Thurgood Marshall, mm-hmm. and we start the series with how important the Supreme Court has been to all Americans, um, But really, I could have made this series all about the Supreme Court and race, Mm -hmm. because when you think about what we as Americans value about the court, what are some of the decisions that we look to? Brown v. Board of Education, voting rights, um, upholding, um, even some of the criminal justice cases, many of which were uh, resolved during the Warren Court era in favor of black and brown people. 
So you have the right to an attorney, um, or you have Miranda v. Uh, Miranda warnings. So when we think historically about the Supreme Court, it really was a court that looked out for people without power. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, that you know, once upon a time, you know, Thurgood Marshall marching through, you know, desegregating America we would say, let's get to the Supremes. Let's get to that court because they're going to protect our rights. And today we have, you know, it's something like 17% of of Democrats have a favorable opinion of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. 60% of Republicans have a favorable uh, opinion of the Supreme Court. So there's a big discrepancy in what Americans as a whole, it depends on your perspective. And our perspectives are not the same. Yep. Um, what's your read again? Just some big questions to start our conversation. We'll, we'll narrow as we move again through the hour. Um, what's your read on how politicized the court has become? We'll talk about what you said a moment ago that the court at one point, you know, w- were protecting people without power, and now it's something altogether different. But give me your your, your broad view on how politicized this court has become. You know, um, it does feel, I think, to many many people that with these last three appointments to the court. So Amy Coney Barrett, um, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil, and um, Neil uh, Gorsuch, mm-hmm. that those are really politicized appointments. And that is not just a random belief, but that is taken from the idea that all of those um, justices came up with the support of the Federalist Society, mm-hmm. a very conservative group, that uh, Donald Trump bragged that had created his list of people to be appointed, and all of those folks were on that list. So it's not just, you know, kind of a random thought that these are, that the court's composition is comprised of people with ideologies that are very uh, conservative. It is actually, you know, there's actually some, some fire where there's that smoke. Yep. Uh, just getting started in this uh, second hour today, the Supreme Court is back in session. Summer recess is over. Uh, the new term uh, officially begins today. Uh, Don Porter's new uh, series, award-winning filmmaker Don Porter, uh, her new series is called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Court, currently available on Paramount Plus with Showtime. Uh, we'll get uh, right into this conversation when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Sounds different, huh? This is Tavis Smiley. Our guest is Don Porter, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. Uh, her latest project is called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. It's a four-part documentary series tracing the modern history of the court and the people and decisions and confirmation battles that have shaped the court into what it is today, or put another way, what it ain't today, depending on one's perspective. Uh, we're having this conversation today in part because, in case uh, you, have, you just tuned in, uh, Supreme Court uh, back in session today. The new term begins today. Summer recess is over, and so no time like the present to be talking about this documentary series streaming right now on Paramount Plus with Showtime. And uh, again, pleased to have Don Porter. Uh, the filmmaker behind this project as our guest in this hour. There are a couple of things we were talking about earlier, Don, I want to come back to right quick before I move forward. Um, and that is this notion, first of all, that you raised about how uh, the, the, the court at times, at times has sided with the people who don't have power. That's not the frame that we're in right now. All they do is side with the folk who are in power. But there was a moment in which they did some pretty good work 
uh, on behalf of the folk without power. When would you uh, identify that particular era? And as you look back on it, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, you know, um, there's a very clear point in time when the court was really working to advance the rights, particularly of black people. So before the Warren Court, which Mm -hmm. is you know, in the 1950s, um, the court really was uh, using its power to assess economic questions. And But it, when Earl Warren takes the bench, he says, well, the Bill of Rights applies to individuals, and those are the cases that we should be taking. So the, the job of the chief justice is really important in helping set the agenda of the court. Um, There's a process by which they decide which cases come forward, but the chief justice signs the opinions and who's going to write the opinions. And so Earl Warren, his term as chief justice coincides with another very, very significant event, which is uh, Thurgood Marshall's lawyering across the country. Mm -hmm. So Thurgood Marshall and the uh, lawyers that he worked with most of whom were trained by by Charles Hamilton Houston out of Howard. Mm -hmm. Um, Marshall argues before the court 32 times, and he wins 29 of those times. (laughs) So, you know, we forget this history. And when you think about, you know, what Marshall and, and his, you know, compatriots were doing is they were systematically dismantling segregation across the country. And But what they were also doing is they were making the law that would govern how we treat racial minorities. So that is a really, it's, it's, it, Marshall couldn't have done it alone. Warren couldn't have done it alone. They needed each other. And so they were the two right people at the right time. And so that, you know, Marshall's wins at that point come even before he's appointed to be solicitor general. Mm-hmm. The solicitor general is the lawyer for the United States. Mm-hmm. So Lyndon Johnson, who's president at the time, he wants to appoint the first black Supreme Court justice. And he has his eye on Marshall, who has such a stellar reputation. And so what Lyndon Johnson does is he appoints Marshall to be solicitor general. He says every time it's the lawyer for the United States who stands up before the Supreme Court, it's going to be a black man. And that's exactly what happens. And Johnson does that. So because he knows when he appoints Marshall to the court, when he nominates him, that he didn't want the Southern Dixiecrats to be able to say he's not qualified. He's like, he's going to be the most qualified lawyer who has ever Mm. been nominated to the bench. And that's exactly what happens. So, Mm. you know, there in that in that time period, you get some of the cases that I was talking about. You get you not only get Brown v. Board of Education, you get it to be unanimous. And so people who were there in the in the courtroom when Brown was announced said there was like a hush that fell over the courtroom. And people understood what a significant ruling it was and that it was nine to zero. And then several years later, the court reaffirms and said in Brown, when we said segregation was unequal, we meant it. And so the court continues to enforce it, even with some of the most recalcitrant states, like, of course, Mississippi. Yeah, uh, I want to pause for a second here, um, because I, I have I've been asked more times than I can count 
Uh, I routinely get asked a question like this. When you do what I do, these are the kind of questions that people pose to you when they see you or meet you. Um, so tell me, tell me who you've not interviewed, who you would love to have interviewed. <laughs> uh, I get that question all the time. And Thurgood Marshall is on that list. I've never had a chance to interview uh, Thurgood Marshall. Most Supreme Court justices, uh, certainly back in the day, didn't sit for interviews anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. That was not a part of what they did, as you well know. But I would love to have sat down with Thurgood Marshall for for uh, for an interview uh, on a variety of subjects. But I want to pause for a second because I, I, I hope the audience heard what you just what you just laid out. Thurgood Marshall, prior to becoming Solicitor General. Now, when you're the, when you're the, the when you're the attorney for the U.S. Uh, for the United States government, you expect to win most of your cases. We don't we don't pick exactly. a Solicitor General who we <laughs> expect to lose. So, uh, when when you be, when he becomes Solicitor General and LBJ gives him that that, that appointment. Uh, he does an amazing job. You expect to win those cases. You are, after all, representing the United States government. But prior to becoming Solicitor General, he argues 32 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and he wins 29 of them. That is an enviable record, Don Porter, 29 of 32? That's right. Unbelievable. And he won those cases when they were making somewhat new law. They were interpreting the Constitution in a way that had not happened before. And so those black lawyers created this pathway for individual rights that would not just benefit black people, would benefit all people. It's a this is what the Constitution provides. I had a guest on this program not long ago. Uh, Her name is LaDoris Cordell, brilliant justice um, uh, jurist, uh, retired now here in the state of California. And she is a student of Thurgood Marshall, and I wish I had the exact number at my recall. I do not, because um, it's a strange number. But th- the point is that once he gets on the Supreme Court, the issue that he wrote about more than any other, I mean, thousands of times, Thurgood Marshall kept writing and kept writing and kept dissenting and kept dissenting and kept on dissenting about the death penalty. He could not abide. Yeah. He could not abide, as you know, the death penalty. And more than any other issue during his tenure, his long tenure on that court, the thing he dissented on more than anything else and wrote so many opinions about uh, was the death penalty. That was a serious issue for him. Uh, and I guess I said he could not abide um, the death penalty uh, as law in this country. Another fascinating factoid uh, uh, about about Thurgood Marshall. Um, let me just ask a broad question since we're talking about Marshall. Um, and again, you, you're the you're the force behind this this four part series deadlocked how America shaped the Supreme Court. Um, how would you define over the over 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 history uh, the Supreme Court's relationship with race? Yeah, you know, race is um, race appears in so many different ways in Supreme Court jurisprudence. So, you know, of course, we start with Plessy v. Ferguson, which is one of the or, you know original cases, which says you know black people are three fifths of a person and so they can't qualify for xyz and then you get of course you move through history and as we just discussed you get marshall and his compatriots dismantling the idea that black people are anything less than full people but what you also see so many times are questions where um race comes before the court either directly or indirectly so in voting rights in redistricting in affirmative action, even in the criminal justice cases where you see the rhetoric around why people should get rights or not get rights, you see race, you know, come up as, as a, it's, it's always kind of just below the surface. And so it's not only important that Marshall was on the court 
um, writing majority opinions, it's important that he was on the court writing the dissents. And we see Katanji Brown Jackson doing the same thing today. Mm-hmm. She is writing dissents, looking towards the future. She's pointing out all the problems with some of the majority opinions that are being decided. And she's writing a roadmap to say, this is how cases have been decided in the past. This is why those cases decided in the past were decided correctly. This is the problem with the majority interpretation. There's all kinds of problems mm-hmm. with all kinds of cases. But it's you, race is, you cannot disentangle Supreme Court jurisprudence from mm-hmm. race in this country. It almost always comes up. Let me ask you whether or not you think, um, back to Thurgood Marshall and now Ketanji Brown-Jackson, do dissents matter? Dissents um, are vital. And so just as you pointed out, Justice Marshall was constantly writing um, his dissents. He's actually trying to convince not only his uh, current justices, but any future justices, because they read each other's opinions. Mm -hmm. The Constitution is actually a fairly bare-bones document. And so what happens is the most important thing you have is interpretation. And so the justices are writing back and forth, and they're trying to convince each other. And if they can't fully convince each other, they're trying to say, well, agree with me on this one little part. And maybe that one little part is going to convince somebody going forward. So it's a really, you know, interesting kind of relationship that they have. They're speaking as much to each other in their concurrences and their majority opinions and their dissents as they are to the lawyers and the advocates who are arguing the cases. So dissents are really vital. Mm. They give us a sense of, you know, kind of where decisions um, in the opinion of some, where they fall short. Yeah. Let me let me pivot for a second here while we're talking about race, because one of the things that fascinates me, and I, I make note of this all the time in my private conversations with people when we talk about the Supreme Court, and now we'll talk about it publicly here, and I'm sure I've said it publicly before somewhere, but what always fascinates me about the court when I look at it right now is that what you have is the most, the most rather diverse Supreme Court we've ever had. You got Sotomayor, you got Ketanji Brown Jackson, mm-hmm. you've got a couple of white women, um, you've got you know this this just a, a variety. It, you got you got Clarence Thomas, of course, African American, um, wrong most of the time, but but an African American nonetheless. My point is, you have the most diverse court ever in the history of this country. And yet, to your earlier point, I could take you back a few frames when the court had nine white males on it, nine white males, and argue that we made more progress then than we're making now with the most diverse court, not ideologically, but certainly in other every, every other aspect. The most diverse court in this country is taking us backwards when, again, speaking of back in the day, a court of all white males advanced us how do you it's a fascinating irony for me how do you read that i i think you're right and i think you know we all know all skin folk aren't kin folk exactly clarence thomas does his best every day to remind us of that um and so you know i i actually think um because we and by we i mean black people are a minority in this country it always stuns me to to realize black people are only 13 percent of americans Mm -hmm. i'm like but but we're everywhere we're in you know in everything (laughs) it it can't that can't be that can't be right Mm -hmm. um but you know i think what that says is you know maybe i'll turn that a little bit 
and say, maybe that's hopeful mm. in that, you know, you can, you know, Thurgood Marshall very famously said when he retired, um, he was very sad to retire. Justice Brennan, a white man, had been the other liberal lion on the court, had written so many opinions upholding the rights of women and minorities. And when Justice Brennan retired, Marshall was, he was ill, he was older, um, and he just, you know, he just kind of needed to step down. But when when asked about, you know, should there be um, a black person nominated to replace him, Marshall said no. Marshall said there's no difference between a black snake and a white snake. Mm. They both bite. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. And we have that in the series because he knew just what you're pointing out. It's where your heart and your head are um, that are the most important things. So I am extremely proud of Katanji Brown Jackson because she is a brilliant jurist, hard stop. She is so smart and, and so thoughtful. And so, you know, that is kind of where we hope that the future nominations will come. They will be people in her mold. When you look back on her confirmation process, uh, how do you read what you saw, what all the rest of us saw? Brilliant though she was, they gave her a hard time. Um, how, how did you read the confirmation process for KBJ? You know, um, we we also know that what our parents always tell us, we have to be twice as good <laughs> yep. to, you know, be considered. Um, and so she is 55 times as good. Yep. <laughs> and still they went after her qualifications. And all I can say to that is that should be a lesson to us, is that for some people it doesn't matter what our qualifications are. The first thing and the only thing they're going to see is this supposed inferiority. And so I can't, I can't be bothered in my time with worrying about people who I'm never going to convince. So I shouldn't have to convince of my, of my worth, but for her confirmation, particularly, I think you're seeing the ugliest side of politics. You're seeing people question a Harvard law undergrad, a Harvard, you know, Harvard, Harvard law, Harvard law review Mm -hmm. (laughs) editor in chief who uh, had a stellar record on the bench. And so there was no question about her, her qualifications. Um, so, you know, that's the ugliest side of politics. That is not a surprise yeah. based on where we are today. The the series is called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, a four-part documentary series uh, tracing the modern history of the Supreme Court, uh, currently available on Paramount Plus with Showtime, the uh, force behind that uh, series, Deadlock. Don Porter is our guest in this hour. When we come forward, um, a conversation about uh, John Roberts, uh, the Chief Justice uh, of this uh, present Supreme Court, and I want to unpack this notion of what it actually means. I don't know. I don't know what the other way would be to do this, but what does it mean that the U.S. Supreme Court chooses the cases it wants to hear? They choose the cases that they want to hear. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Yeah, man. Tab is smiling. Smiley continues when we come forward. Forward. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tab is Smiley coming your way right now. Indeed, our guest in this hour is Don Porter, uh, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker behind this. Uh, 
brilliant project called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, in case you've just tuned in. I mentioned earlier that today the Supreme Court uh, begins its new term. Summer recess is over. They are back to work uh, with a bunch of uh, divisive issues uh, on the docket. Um, I don't know that we could be any more uh, disappointed this term than we were last term. Um, one of our previous guests today, Connie Rice, brother contributor, was talking about the fact that um, she thinks it's going to be a case by case this time. They they are fully aware. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is fully aware uh, of uh, their low poll numbers, um, their uh, their uh, respect and regard uh, amongst uh, uh, fellow Americans writ large is as low as it's ever been. He's fully aware of that. Uh, he's fully aware um, that Americans were very disappointed in many of the decisions by this last court. And so there there are thoughts about whether or not they're going to track a, a bit more to the center this time around or whether or not they're going to be even more rapid uh, this time around. Uh, Don, you care, to, you care to put a wager on that, whether they're going to track more to the center, whether it's going to be a case-by-case situation, whether they're going to be even more rapid this term than they were the last term? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going I'm to take the over on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, and and I'll tell you why because that's what we're already seeing. So mm-hmm. you're you're absolutely right that, you know, John Roberts has not changed, you know, the the person he is or his view about law. John Roberts is the person who, you know, authored and pretty much led the charge to um, invalidate, you know, the portion of the Voting Rights Act that mm-hmm. protected, um, you know, so many protections, that provided so many protections. So he hasn't changed his opinion, and yet we see him voting um, against Alabama and their racially um, unconstitutional attempts to limit the ability of black folks to vote. You see just um, last week the, the, the Supreme Court declined to, you know, hear Alabama's appeal. Alabama had a naked appeal to only have one majority black district Mm -hmm. in a state that's 27% black. And so the lower courts said that is unconstitutional. The, you know, Alabama appeals to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court declined to step in. So that is significant and it speaks to just what you're talking about. The court is very much aware of the negative polling that it has. And and why is polling important? Because the court does not have an army. It does not have finances. The court has public opinion. We obey the court because we believe that its decisions are legitimate. And if we stop believing that, we're in very murky and I would say dangerous ground. And that's why I wanted to make this serious to say this court has been great once before, and it can be great again. But we need to pay attention and to allow the court to say, you, uh, and to tell the court, you can't just make up new rules of law. You can't just depart from precedent, and you can't abandon the people. Mm. This series is called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, uh, uh, currently available once again on Paramount <clears throat> Paramount Plus with, with Showtime. Let me come to something that is it's pretty it's pretty inane. It's pretty rudimentary, pretty basic. And yet I find that it's worth reminding the audience uh, from time to time that the U.S. Supreme Court chooses the cases it wants to hear. They pick the cases that they want to hear. Uh, there's no deep, brilliant question here, but that there's a lot in there uh, to work with if you choose to do so. Um, how, how do you read that reality? And again, I'm the first to tell you, I don't know what the other option would be. I just know it's worth reminding people every term 
uh, when they get more more and more crazy, more and more rabid, they move, they move further and further to the right. Uh, be clear that they choose the cases that they want to hear. I'll let you unpack that any way you want to unpack it, Don Porter. Yeah, well, well, Tavis, that's that's actually a really important um, procedure that you're pointing to. So there are thousands of cases that are appealed to the Supreme Court every year. And, of course, they couldn't hear all of them even if they wanted to. That's something like more than 7,000 cases are appealed. And the court usually hears less than 200 of those. And one of the things that people have noticed is the court is hearing even fewer cases than it ever has in its history. And people are questioning, why is that the case? One reason people are looking to is it's hearing more cases. So there's there's a few different ways cases get to the Supreme Court. The most usual way is on appeal from a lower court decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's another way that you can get to the Supreme Court, and that's in an emergency opinion. And that usually happens if there's an emergency, if there's a war, or if there's a, a death penalty case that's a being appealed to the Supreme Court. But something interesting has been happening um, in the last several years. And that really happened uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump appealed more cases on an emergency basis to the Supreme Court than in the prior uh, uh, two decades. So between George Bush II, two two, uh, terms, you know, so Mm -hmm. eight years, and Barack Obama, eight years. So in that 16 years, Obama and George Bush together appealed on an emergency basis eight times, and the court granted emergency review four times. In Trump's presidency, he appealed to the court on an emergency basis 38 times, Mm. and the court granted emergency review 29 times. So think about what happens when you appeal on an emergency basis. It disrupts all your other business. Mm -hmm. It pushes everything else to the side. And why is this important? Because the court is deciding things like, can Trump do a Muslim ban on an emergency basis? Can Trump stop the CDC from issuing uh, COVID rules on an emergency basis? So these kinds of decisions that are written, when you rule on an emergency basis, there's no opinions. You know, we were talking about the importance of dissents Mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll get a dissent, but you don't have the full briefing and consideration that a case of constitutional significance should have. And so the justices are making these emergency rulings, and we're not quite sure what we're supposed to follow in the law. So that's just one of the things that is happening with this Supreme Court that you could say, this is not political. This is a change in procedure that's affecting the laws that govern all of our lives. I got 45 seconds for this answer, and it shouldn't take much longer than that anyway. But but, but what does it say um, about Donald Trump that he appealed to the Supreme Court in the emergency uh, situation that many times? How do I read that reality? You know, Donald Trump wants what he wants, and he thought that he had put in place a court that would do his bidding. And, and sadly, that turned out to be the case. When we come forward, uh, talking to Don Porter, again, the uh, uh, award-winning filmmaker behind this new project, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, streaming now on Paramount Plus with Showtime. I want to come right to this notion of uh, 
a code, of, a code of ethics. We discussed this earlier on today's program, but I've been waiting to get to Don to ask her about it. Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito seem to have gotten away with a whole bunch of stuff, Clarence Thomas in particular, uh, because the Supreme Court does not have a code of ethics. We're talking about how America has shaped this Supreme Court. Why does it not have a code of ethics? We'll get to that and a bit more when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. A sense. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. We're talking Don Porter about your new series for Paramount Plus at Showtime called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. One of the things that we did not do, uh, America did not do in shaping the Supreme Court, was to uh, install a code of ethics. And Clarence Thomas has just run roughshod uh, over that reality. Um, Samuel Leto ain't much better. Um, but um, when you look at the ways um, that fellow citizens view this Supreme Court, the more these stories come out about how they're getting hooked up by all their friends, oftentimes friends who have cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court from which they never recuse themselves, it's it's a damning indictment of the U.S. Supreme Court. And Alito and Thomas are two of the ones to blame for that. Um, what say you at this point uh, in the history of the Supreme Court about the fact that they do not have a code of ethics? I think it's one of the saddest moments um, in our Supreme Court history, and it pains me um, to see such, really such shame brought to the court. It is unbelievable that nine unelected people with a lifetime tenure do not, are the only judges in our country who do not have a basic code of ethics, a basic code of ethics. We are far beyond the self-regulating, you know, physician heal thyself. We are far beyond that because we have seen, unfortunately, that Clarence Thomas in particular, is not able to to abide by any uh, code of decency or ethics. It is surreal to me that his mother's home is owned by a billionaire with an agenda mm-hmm. with, that, with cases that come before the court. Mm-hmm. There, there is no excuse for that. There is just literally no excuse for that. Mm-hmm. Harlan Crow is his name, by the way. Uh, and uh, only bought Clarence Thomas and mom, Mama's house and paid for his nephew to go to college and has given him all kinds of luxury gifts and trips, et cetera, et cetera. These stories just keep coming out. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, it appears to me that Clarence Thomas and Samuel Lito have skated once again. And uh, even though the Democrats have the authority in the Senate to do something about this, they refuse to do anything about it. Uh, why they're afraid to take on Clarence Thomas and Alito on the Supreme Court, I do not know. Uh, for all the complaining they do about the decisions coming from the court, they won't do anything to address this. Uh, Dick Durbin uh, out of Illinois has the authority as head of that committee to do more about it. And I'm uh, just disappointed in Dick Durbin for not doing more in that regard to, to, to call this Supreme Court on the carpet, as it were. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Don Porter talking about this new project, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, um, what uh, does she say about uh, reforming the court? Are there any number of ways that have been discussed, um, ending life terms, expanding the number of members of the court? Uh, we've been talking about how we've shaped the Supreme Court to date. Just the question is, in our remaining moments, how we perhaps rethink the court in the years to come. You're listening to Don Porter right now on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Rank number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. 
You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 Just got a few minutes left in this uh, conversation with Don Porter, which I've enjoyed immensely about her new project called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court. It's a four-part documentary series uh, running right now on Paramount Plus with Showtime. So, Don, um, we've been talking about how we've shaped it to date. Let's close by talking about how we rethink it perhaps in the future. Um, You've done this four-part series. What say you about all the talk, all the conversation, which I think is growing? Uh, I, I hear a chorus uh, that's gaining more voices about the fact that now is the time to look at some meaningful reforms for the U.S. Supreme Court. What say you? Um, I agree. I, I think at a, at a minimum, the court should abide by the same kind of ethical rules that are in place for every other judge or, you know, administrative law judge has more ethical restrictions than a member of the United States Supreme Court. And there, there's no reason for that. Um, I do think we're in very serious times. Um, the challenges that are facing us are literally life and death challenges. And so I think that we should have, you know, if we're to have this institution last for another 200 years, um, you know, you, you criticize your, your loved ones in order to protect them, right? And so I think that we need to look at things like, would term limits actually be possible um, you know, what kinds of what kinds of other reforms could we imagine? And and just before we close, I just want to say um, something to you, Tavis, because it is so important for black people to be paying attention to the court. So many of our interests are um, come before the court and too many of our people are not um, up to speed on what is happening. So I just really want to thank you for having these conversations, for making sure that we are educated and informed because we have power when we come together, um, and you're you're doing so much to make sure that people have this information. And I, I just really want to thank you for that. You were kind. I appreciate that. Um, um, that's very nice of you. Um, let, let me ask you whether or not you think, um, at the end of this conversation, that this court, in fact, has too much power. I'm sure you've been following, as I've been following, what's happening in Israel uh, and Bibi Netanyahu and all their efforts to to um, to ring in uh, their their Supreme Court. Uh, and around the globe, it is the case that no country, uh, no Supreme Court of any country has as much power as this Supreme Court does in these United States. Does this court have too much power? I don't think that the court has too much power, um, but I don't think that that um, but I do think that we need to remind the court that it is part of a system of checks and balances. And that if it does not behave responsibly, ethically, legitimately, um, that the court is in danger of losing its reputation and therefore its authority. So I don't think it has too much power. I just think that um, all parts of our government need Mm -hmm. to be working together to make sure that that there are those checks Mm -hmm. and balances in place. And in the 45 seconds I have left, just run me right quick through the four parts to this documentary. Yes, we have uh, episode one, which is largely about Marshall and the Warren court. Episode two uh, deals with Nixon, who campaigned on overturning the Warren court decisions, who was very upset. It goes to the history of Roe v. Wade and how that was not a controversial decision. Episode three gets into uh, Bush v. Gore. You know, we talked about, is this mm-hmm. court political? How the court stopped the counting of votes in Florida rather than letting the process take its course. 
And then episode four is something of our blockbuster that deals with the current court, although it does not get into detail about all the ethics conversations because we had to stop somewhere and the court kept doing unethical things. (laughs) And so we didn't get to them. But I hope you will watch and you will understand how we got to this place. And that's what if you watch all four episodes, it gives you the background of how, how we got here. It didn't just happen overnight. It was intentional. Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Don Porter, her latest showcase project is called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, streaming right now on Paramount Plus with Showtime. Don, congrats on a brilliant piece of work. Good to have you on this program. Thank you so much.